Who is the real Armin Budish? What kind of sexism is at play in the state house? Why won't Cleveland join a big crime fighting effort? Who, what, why? Questions are what we pose in the Saturday bonus episode of our podcast, This Week in the CLE from Cleveland.com. In our regular episodes, published Thursdays, we discuss in some length the news of the week. In this shorter episode, we pose the questions that remain from that news. I'm your host, Cleveland.com editor Chris Quinn. What will be the legacy of Cuyahoga County Executive Armand Budish? We have talked at length over the years about the inexplicable number of dopey things his administration has done, enormous cost overruns on contracts that no one seems to be minding, stupefying misinterpretations of the power granted to the administration by the charter, allowing the county jail to become inhumane and dangerous, a place where eight prisoners died in one year. But then we have Budish's big ideas. He increased spending on early child education by $23 million, $10 million from the county, and $13 million in donations. This is life-changing stuff. Then, in a county where police departments never learned to share information, Budish created a centralized police report system where every department now files crime reports except Cleveland, greatly boosting the ability to spot trends, solve crime, and stop crime. Budish launched the discussion on a diversion center to start treating the mentally ill instead of jailing them on crimes resulting from their illness. When Cleveland.com publicized the great work Amber Donovan was doing to help foster children as they enter adulthood, Budish provided extra money to reach more kids. He created a thorough report card for how county government is performing. He is pushing a plan to plant trees throughout the county, and he has a vision for a bike and hike trail along the length of Lake Erie in the county to give people access to our greatest asset. These are objectively great ideas that could have impact for decades. So when the day comes when his time in office is in our rearview mirror, will we remember Budish best for his administration's general incompetence in delivering basic services? Or will we remember him as a visionary who launched life-altering projects improving the lives of county residents? What will it take to break the logjam that is Cleveland's refusal to participate in a countywide record-keeping system aimed at fighting and solving crime? Will we have to wait for the next mayor's race to get solemn promises from the candidates to join Cuyahoga County's police reporting system? Without Cleveland, that system is much diminished. We know how often criminals cross the border between Cleveland and the suburbs. Not having Cleveland's crime reports weakens the intelligence needed to solve the crimes. The centralized record system is the brainchild of County Executive Armin Budish, who saw soon after he was elected five years ago that every police department kept its own records and did not share. He built the new system and invited all to join. Only Cleveland has refused. And Cleveland won't say why. Is it because city officials don't want us to know the extent of crime inside the city borders? Is it that participation might show that Cleveland police records are incomplete? 
2021 will see the next mayor's race, and it might take the glare of an election to persuade candidates to commit to joining this system. Will candidates see the value of making such a promise? Did Ohio's controversial facial recognition software tool for law enforcement have a security flaw? A task force has recommended cutting off access to 4,500 law enforcement agencies, even though Attorney General Dave Yost said he detected no abuse by those agencies. Facial recognition software is controversial because of privacy issues. The Ohio database, which includes driver license photos from 2011 and a lot of mugshots, compares photos of crime suspects and other unidentified people to come up with those IDs. Fears that the entire database had been given to the FBI, which proved to be unfounded, caused Yost to appoint a task force to come up with best practices. That task force has recommended ending access to local police, the FBI, and others, and will instead force those agencies to ask the state to do the searches. The committee said this would result in better quality searches by properly trained investigators, a curated culture of appropriate use, clear accountability, consistency, and improved public confidence. It will be a lot of extra work for the state, though, which raises the question about whether there might be something more at stake here. Did the task force fear that the system could be compromised with so many agencies having access? With the race for the Democratic nomination for president so unpredictable, when is it safe for an Ohio voter to send in an early ballot for the March 17th primary? Cleveland.com's data expert Rich Exner published a story this week that takes note of how few Ohioans vote early in presidential primaries compared to the general presidential election. Four years ago, only 14% of the primary ballots were absentee, compared to 34% in the general election. Rich said those numbers have been consistent since Ohio liberalized the rules for early voting in 2006. In primary elections from 2012 to 2018, absentee ballots accounted for 14 to 17% each time, about half the percentage we saw in the general elections. Will it be less this year, however, with so many candidates still in the race and the dynamics changing almost daily, some candidates could drop out before March 17th, meaning an early absentee ballot vote for them would be wasted. Most people want their votes to count. So when is it safe to turn in your ballot? This year, it might be in the days just before Election Day. Is the Ohio House of Representatives sexist? Columnist Leila Tassi makes a pretty good case that it is. The question arises from how two proposals are being handled to remove the statute of limitations in sex crimes cases. The root of this debate is that at least 177 young men were sexually abused decades ago by Ohio State University Dr. Richard Strauss. He was never charged and he killed himself in 2005. More than 350 men have sued OSU, saying they were abused, and Governor Mike DeWine and Attorney General Dave Yost have called on the legislature to abolish the statute of limitations for rape and sexual assault so that people like Strauss's victims can seek justice. Two House bills have resulted from that call. 
one, sponsored by Republicans who dominate the legislature, would waive the statute of limitations just for the Strauss victims so they could sue the university and get damages. House Speaker Larry Householder fully supports this. The second, introduced by Democrats, seeks to waive the statute of limitations for all rape cases, not just the men at OSU. That bill is going nowhere. Householder said he does not like to retroactively change laws, and he worries that memories of victims can fade over time. That's kind of ridiculous because he supports changing the law for OSU victims who were abused decades ago, and he evidently has no issues with their memories. Layla makes the case that Householder wants to help the men who were victims at OSU but will not help women who so often are the victims of rape. Amelia Sykes, the Democratic leader in the House, has called what's going on sexism. The question is, can she persuade enough of her colleagues to lean on Householder? Thanks for listening to this bonus episode of This Week in the CLE. We'll be back with another next Saturday.